Hello and welcome to this episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is George Cooper. I'm a medical writer and podcast host. And throughout this podcast, we'll be discussing some highlights from the European Society of Cardiology Congress 2023. Before we get started, we first should mention that this medical education podcast has been supported by Bristol Myers Squibb. Throughout today's podcast, we'll be discussing hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as a disease area, the use of myosin inhibitors to treat HCM. We'll bring you some updates to the ESC guidelines. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll be bringing you up to speed with all the latest developments from the ESC Congress 2023. Joining me for today's podcast is Dr. Pablo Garcia Pavia, who's Director of Heart Failure and Inherited Cardiac Disease at Hospital Puerta de Hierro and a professor at the Spanish Cardiovascular Research Institute. How are you today, Dr. Garcia Pavia? It's, it's great to have you on. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. And how was the Congress? Did you, did you have a, um, I trust it was an informative time? Yeah, it was certainly a, a great moment for cardiology. It's certainly the biggest Congress in cardiology that we have currently. And after so many years of having had the possibility to join with colleagues and discuss about science, getting together again has been great. I'm glad it was such a fruitful trip and we'll be coming on to some of the highlights from that Congress very shortly. But let's first just set the scene a little bit and start by discussing hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or HCM as a whole. So very, very briefly, uh, for the benefit of our audience, can you just explain what HCM is and the burden that it has on patients? Yeah, of course. So hypertrophic apathy is the most frequent inherited cardiac disease. It affects around one in 500 of the overall population. Although currently there are some doubts about this and there are people who suggest that it might affect even a higher frequency of individuals, around one in 250 of the overall population. And it is a cardiopathy, which means a heart muscle disease and in this disease, what happens is that the left ventricle wall gets thicker than what it should be. So instead of thickening of 10 millimeters, which is around the normal value in a normal person, when it gets thicker than 15 millimeters and there is no cause that justifies that, is when we talk about hypertrophic apathy. In this disease, is in a majority of patients, is caused by mutations in sarcomeric genes, the, the genes that code for sarcomeric proteins. Though uh, sarcomeric proteins are the proteins that are located in the sarcomere. The sarcomere is the structure that allows contraction and relaxation of the myocytes of the cells of the muscles. So in this disease, because of the defect that we have in our DNA, the proteins do not work properly. And because of this um, proper mechanism of these proteins, what happens is that the myocytes get thicker and eventually suffer and might die and get, get replaced by fibrosis, by scars. So that's how this disease evolves. In the majority of patients, this disease is benign. Otherwise, we will not already have heard about this disease because with such a strong incidence in the population, if it had been a very malignant disease, we will have had everybody 
a relative or somebody around who have had problems because of this disease. But in a majority of patients, this is not a bad disease. Nevertheless, there is a number of patients who get complications from this disease, and this can involve shortness of breath, dyspnea, palpitations, uh, dizziness, syncope, or eventually, in a minority, sudden cardiac death. I see. And from the other podcast that we've done within this series, we, we've discussed about how the symptoms merge between other heart conditions. So it's often very hard to tell exactly what it is. So it's important that uh, physicians have HCM in mind when they're seeing patients who are presenting with symptoms of dizziness and tiredness and all of those kind of things that can arise. Um, in your view, obviously, you're an incredibly experienced physician within the field. How, how has the understanding of HCM evolved over the years? Let's talk specifically about your years in practice and how do you think this is impacting the way we approach its treatment nowadays yeah we we have improved a lot in the follow-up of our, of these patients in the diagnosis and follow-up of patients with hypertrophy first of all the imaging techniques that we have available have improved a lot over time so we are able nowadays to diagnose better these patients because we have better imaging tools furthermore I think that a higher number of individuals in the population get tested and diagnosed nowadays because there is more education about it. And also because patients get more medical checkups, either for insurances, for jobs, or because they are going to start doing exercise, they get some medical tests. And if you get an ECG, there might be abnormalities in the ECG, and that's how the disease is from. So certainly now we are diagnosing more patients. Also, there has been an advantage, a huge advantage, in the understanding of the natural history of this disease. So nowadays, we know that this is a disease that is less malignant than what we thought at the beginning, because at the beginning, the most severe cases are, were the ones who were diagnosed. So nowadays we have a, a better understanding of that. But also we have been able to learn better what are the underlying mechanisms and the mutations that create or give this disease. And that has really been critical in order to develop better treatments. And currently we are facing a new era, a new completely different era, because in hypertrophic world, we were using drugs that had been developed for other cardiac conditions, but we were not using uh, drugs specifically designed to tackle the underlying molecular mechanism of this disease. And currently, we have a new whole generation of new drugs that are being developed to uh, try to solve or attack the molecular pathways that are uh, altered in this disease. You talk about a new dawn within HCM treatment, New Horizons, and following the ESC Congress, there was a lot of attention and noise on a particular category of drugs within HCM, which is the myosin inhibitors. Now, they gained a lot of attention as a potential HCM treatment. Can you explain briefly for our audience how, how these drugs work and their potential role in managing HCM? Sure. So over the last years, we have understood that the underlying problem in patients with hypertrophic apathy is an excess of contractility. So the problem that uh, the mutations ultimately cause 
is that the structure of the sarcomere does not relax properly. And what it happens is that there is an overcontraction problem. This overcontraction drives all the molecular pathways that get to this disease. So this problem of overcontraction, at the end of the day, what happens is that the, the contraction and the relaxation process do not work properly. And the response from the cardiac muscle is to get bigger. So most of the manifestations of the disease come from this overcontractility and impaired relaxation. What cardiac machine inhibitors do is actually try to tackle this problem. What they do is they inhibit one part of the uh, myosin molecule. And what by doing that, what they do is they promote an adjustment in the force of the contraction of the myocytes of these patients. So by doing that, they improve the way that the muscle beats or pumps blood and also the way that the left ventricle accommodates the blood that is coming inside the heart chamber. Can you explain some of the potential benefits for patients over the kind of traditional treatments that you may see for, for HCM? Yeah, well, these specific therapies, what they have shown is that they, at this stage, we have evidence showing that they improve a subtype of patients with hypertrophic neuropathy, which are the ones that have obstructive hypertrophic neuropathy. In obstructive hypertrophic neuropathy, um, the thickening of the heart at the basal septal wall of the left ventricle impairs the uh, way that blood is ejected from the heart. So this overcontractility combined with the increased thickness and also other valvular uh, cardiac, uh, well, papillary muscle abnormalities create a problem of emptying of the heart. So what it has been shown is that by using these molecules, what we can do is improve the, uh, and decrease the degree of obstruction of the obstacle that we have for emptying the heart and the amount of blood that can come out from the heart at each beat increases and by doing that the patient feels better because they can perform more activity and they feel less symptoms from the disease. You mentioned the evidence there that you just outlined for obstructive HCM and myosin inhibitors. I want to bring it back to the ESC Congress, which I know you've just returned from. Were there any noticeable presentations or studies at the ESC Congress uh, this year uh, regarding myosin inhibitor drugs and their effectiveness in treating HCM that you'd like to Yeah, mention? well, there, are, there were some presentations which were uh, on that. One was uh, a presentation that I gave about the long-term effects of myosin inhibitors uh, over almost two years or more than two years of treatment with patients that were enrolled in the original study that led to the approval of this drug in obstructive HCM, which was the Explorer. So after completing the Explorer trial, 
all patients who participated in, in that trial, uh, regardless if they receive this drug, which its name is Mavacantem or placebo, were treated, were enrolled in a long-term extension study where all the patients received Mavacantem. So this long-term extension study is being conducted during five years, and we have already completed two years of follow-up. And during these two years, we have seen that positive effects of the drugs of the drug were maintained. Patients got improved in their symptoms classified by the NHA functional class, and also had positive effects on uh, echocardiographic parameters like the degree of obstruction and also some other parameters like uh, left atrial volume index. That's very good news because that uh, one of the problems of this drug is that because of their mode of, act of action that they may create some weakness in the heart, one might thought that the long-term exposition of patients to this drug might uh, create problems in the long term. Well, so far we have seen that that's not the case. Uh, during two years of follow-up, a very little number of patients had side effects, and those side effects were mostly not related with the drug, So, and there were no deaths and no important problems. So we are getting more and more confident about these drugs that seem to be very useful in alleviating patient symptoms, and uh, in the long term, they seem, this, they seem to be uh, very safe. So we are very happy. So that was one of the most important presentations in the Congress uh, around this topic. Also, there was another long-term extension study or long-term follow-up of another study called the Valor HCM study. And similar results were seen in patients. In that case, were patients who... Uh, were eligible for a, a therapy, which is invasive reduction therapy uh, or surgical myectomy. Well, those patients who were uh, very, who had very severe symptoms, they uh, went into a study using mavacantem, and after completion of the study, those patients continued on mavacantem, and it was found that the number of patients who required surgical intervention remain very low. So this seems to be a very effective drug that allows many patients uh, to stay away from surgical procedures, So, which is really great because that gives us another opportunity to benefit these patients. And the last uh, presentation that I want to highlight that was presented in this, on this topic during the Congress is another presentation from Dr. Lakdawa Walla from Boston, who showed that during the long-term study, many of the patients who were on other therapies like beta blockers or verapamil initially, and who were treated with mavacantem, were able to decrease the number and the dose of the other drugs that they were receiving. So because all these other drugs commonly have side effects. It's really very important. We are very happy that maybe in the future we will be able to use these compounds 
in as, as a monotherapy in, in this disease. That was a wonderful roundup to the subject of myosin inhibitors at the ESC Congress, um, Dr. Garcia Pavia. Really do appreciate that. And the European Society of Cardiology guidelines, as we know, play a crucial role in shaping clinical practice. Could you share some insights into the most significant updates related to HCM within the latest ESC guidelines? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think this ESC Congress has been important also because this is the first time that a guideline in cardiomyopathies has been published. So this is the first of its kind. There was a previous guideline on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but this is the first time that we have a guideline that covers all different cardiomyopathies. And within that, we have the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy guideline that, well, sorry, the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy chapter in the guideline that has updated the previous 2014 HCM guideline from the ESC. There aren't much novelties, I must say, in the HCM guideline, except maybe the incorporation of myosin inhibitors and mavacantin, which is the only one that is approved currently, for the treatment of patients with obstructive HCM. Currently, in the guideline, it is placed as a second-line agent for those patients who do not respond to beta-blockers or calcium channel inhibitors. And that has been probably the major change that has occurred in the HCM chapter. Another novelty or maybe a new ad of the guideline is that the ESC writing committee, where I was involved, decided to stick with previous recommendations regarding sudden cardiac death prevention. The recommendations followed in Europe addressed that this, the, for addressing sudden cardiac death prevention and uh, referring patients for ICD implantation uh, we were using a risk calculator called the HCM risk. And this is an approach which is completely different to the one followed in the US, where individual risk factors are being used for deciding if a patient will require ICD for sudden cardiac death prevention. While in Europe, in the previous guideline, we decided to move away from this individual risk factor approach and use risk calculators to address what is the probability of the patients for of suffering uh, that event. And after that, discussing with the patient the, ne the necessity or the need from, for implanting an ICD. Well, we have decided to keep with that approach, maintain the recommendation of using the HCM risk score, the risk calculator, and maybe we have put in perspective some of the newest risk factors that have been suggested in this disease, like, for example, left ventricular apical aneurysms. We have decided as this, uh, or maybe uh, late GAD, uh, late gadolinium enhancement on MRI. So we decided that as these parameters were not included in the calculator and there was a, an important overlap with other factors that are included in the calculator, we decided that it was better not to follow them and only use them in case that the patient had uh, an intermediate risk for sudden cardiac death. 
So we recognize that these newest factors might be used for patients that have an intermediate risk in which it's very important to discuss with the patient what is the attitude to be followed. I mean, these are all incredibly positive updates and resources for your fellow physicians uh, to, to be adopting. I was curious, looking ahead, what do you envision the future to look like with HCM treatment with relation to myosin inhibitors? Are, are there any challenges or hurdles that you've yeah, obviously. I mean, I think there are there are things to to learn in the future. One is how to follow these patients because currently we are following these patients very closely, and maybe that is not so important. Certainly, we will need to address that because it's going to be challenging to follow so closely such a big number of patients. So currently, we are starting to treat patients with these drugs. Currently, it's required to visit these patients month or every three months. Well, that's super frequently and certainly uh, it's challenging not only for the patients that will need to come to the hospital very, very frequently, but also for the organization of healthcare in our institutions because we have to address uh, that, uh, how to face a whole a new number of patients coming to the clinic. So that's one of the things that we will need to address uh, in upcoming years. Secondly, I think that is uh, we will need to place better what is the role of these therapies in the drug armamentarium. Um, uh, currently, we have placed it in the second line after beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. But with the emerging data that we have and other uh, clinical trials that might come in upcoming years, we might move, or I think that we will probably move these drugs to a first line. I hope so. And we have to generate the evidence to do that movement and place these drugs uh, at the same level than beta blockers or calcium channel blockers do have currently. And the third area that I think that we will need to to address in upcoming years is uh, the possibility of using these drugs in patients who have very mild symptoms or are completely asymptomatic, and even potentially in patients who have not developed the disease yet. Because if we are able to identify which patients do suffer from the mutations but have not expressed the disease yet, potentially we can prevent expression of the disease by the use of these drugs. So certainly, I mean, I think those are the three areas that we will need to, to address in upcoming 10 years. It's all about the further research and evidence and hopefully in, I mean, sooner than 10 years, we can be recording another podcast and discussing guidelines to make mycin inhibitors first line and, and so on. I just wanted to ask before you, before we wrap up, if I'm going to ask you to get your crystal ball out and ask, what do you anticipate we'll be talking about following the ESE next year? Well, I think that uh, Mabacantem was the first, but in ESE next year, we will be able to talk about other myosin inhibitors, so which are being developed. So that's one of the things that probably we will be talking at next ESE, along with uh, new additional data about changes induced at the structural level 
from a backend team. I think it is extremely important the study that are the studies that are being conducted with my backend team in the long term, and we are going to have more and more information about extended follow up of patients treated for more than three four years with this drug, and we might see even regression of the disease with this continued therapy or with these agents. So I'm looking forward to see those data in upcoming ESC Congress. Dr. Garcia Pavi, it's been a real pleasure and incredibly interesting discussion that we've had today. Thank you so much for your time. But before we do say goodbye, I just wondered what are the key points just to summarize everything that we've talked about in relation to um, mycin inhibitors and the ESC what are the key points that you'd like your fellow uh, cardiologist physicians to, to take home with them after listening to this podcast? Well, HCM is a disease that every cardiologist should be aware of. Thanks God, there are new alternatives to treat this disease in the cardiovascular space, and there might be more and more alternatives in upcoming years. That's good news for patients, good news for the doctors, and we will need to learn more about how to use these drugs and which are the patients that benefit most from the use of these therapies. There is a bright future ahead of us, and I think it's an area, a fascinating area to be engaged in upcoming year. Dr. Pablo Garcia Pavia, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. And that concludes today's discussion. Thank you so much to Dr. Pablo Garcia Pavia for sharing his insights and learnings from the ESC. It was incredibly interesting. We covered so much in such a short space of time. Remember, if you enjoyed this episode, please do not forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We release a new episode every Friday, as well as plenty of bonus episodes like this one. So until next time, take care and goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.